Hello and welcome to the Women's Agenda podcast. I'm Tala Lambert, the co-founder of Agenda Media and editor of Women's Agenda. And I'm joined today by Georgie Dent, executive director at The Parenthood, as well as Women's Agenda contributing editor and all-round legend. On the agenda today, we talk wins for the week. We share an interview with two trailblazing women taking local government by storm. And Georgie channels Julia Gillard in her assessment of women's safety in Australia. She won't be lectured by our Prime Minister, not now, not ever. Georgie, thank you for joining the pod this week. How are you? Hello, I'm good. It is so good to be back here talking to you. It is lovely to have you. Um, So I want to get quickly into the wins for women this week. What have you got for us? Well, I think one of the wins um, for this week is another announcement from a really large company, this time Lion, announcing that it will offer paid leave to all new parents, as well as an additional six weeks of superannuation on unpaid parental leave, up to a total of 18 weeks. And this leave is available whether or not you are a primary or a secondary carer. And you know, that distinction is so outdated and archaic. And so I always welcome, you know, news of companies who are forging a new path. And I think, you know, we have written about this, I've written about this extensively as have other people on Women's Agenda, but I think that getting more dads taking extended parental leave is one of the real areas where we could change the game really significantly for women really quickly. Australia is so outdated thanks to a really inadequate Um, government paid parental leave scheme that really just entrenches this idea that mums do the caring and dads do the earning. And so I thought that's a big win. Um, I mean, it's a win for the dads as well who actually get to take the extended paid leave. Um, But it's a win for mums because anyone who has ventured into the world of parenthood will know that it is such a significant undertaking physically, emotionally, logistically. And being able to share that in a really meaningful way sense you know in a practical sense makes such a difference so I think that's an awesome win for women well done lion yes well done lion I I really welcomed that um policy as well and I I thought that it was particularly impressive their stance around paying those those super contributions that additional leave as well because we know that that will make a significant difference to women who in the vast majority of circumstances take that time out of um, the workforce um, to care for kids and and then subsequently don't have superannuation over that period. So that is contributing significantly to the gap that is there and, and um, it's a really mammoth gap. So well done to Lion on addressing that too because we don't often see employers look at that policy. What Have you seen more employers look at addressing that recently, Georgie? Um, I just I can't think of anyone right off the top of my head now, but I do know that there are a number of big corporates, and I know you know this was a while ago, but I know L'Oreal and I know Deloitte um, are among the organisations that have made really not just generous schemes, but equitable schemes where they have you know brought into effect that even if you just join the company now and you know, and you're technically the secondary carer, they're not interested in those labels and you're still entitled to the full component of paid leave. And I know like in my, we've had three children and I only had paid leave from an employer for one of those children. My husband has worked for um, New South Wales Health in the public hospital system and he, you know, 
he, he barely got a week off with each of our, like our second and our third child. We were living overseas when we had our first child, which meant he was around, which was phenomenal. But when I read about those policy changes, I just think the difference that it will make in households financially but also emotionally and socially is is huge. And I think also the the other thing that is really good about the paying super while parents are on unpaid leave is that it really promotes that idea that you're not actually, you haven't disappeared into the wilderness. You still exist. You're still connected to a workplace. You still have a professional set of skills. And I know it's sort of more, it, that is a bit more symbolic, but I think it is a really good symbol that we need to sort of really start promoting that you don't just disappear when you have a baby and when you're on that period of leave. Yeah, absolutely. I do think that that kind of um, culture shift within your family dynamic is such a huge one as well that you you talk about there. I, someone recently said to me, um, and I have a 19-month-old baby, um, and they recently said to me, you know, you're so lucky that you have, you know, the ultimate flexible work situation and, you know, your partner takes so much time off. And I I had this kind of moment of realisation how lucky I was because, you know, in our household, it really is a very equal, I guess, dynamic between my partner and I. Um, you know, we both take an equal share of um, the caring responsibility of the toddler. Um, we contribute like equally to the domestic load and we contribute equally to our, our family finances. And I think it has been a real game changer in, in carrying those loads and, and feeling I guess, better about it and, and being in a, a kind of nicer, more equitable situation. So I, yeah, I think that policies like this really meaningfully contribute to that dynamic shift as well between partners. So my win for women this week, and we really do need it this week, is there have been some humdingers of bad news stories. Um, but I'm looking to Tokyo um, with the mammoth achievements of female athletes, including Ellie Cole, um, so Ellie Cole, who's officially become our most decorated Paralympian. Uh, she has 17 medals under her belt now, six of which are gold. Um, and I have just loved watching the Paralympics. I felt like this really big um, shock after the Olympics came to a close um, a few weeks ago and it felt really quite, I don't know, it just was such a nice like uplifting um, event, especially in what everyone's going through at the moment. I think we really need those good news stories and we need that light in our day. Um, but now having the Paralymp- Paralympics to look to, uh, it's made a big difference as well. I was watching the the table tennis the other night, um, which was just insane um, but yeah, the the talent of these athletes is just off the charts. Um, have you and your girls been watching much of it, Georgie? Do you know what we actually haven't, which is quite crazy because the girls love sport themselves. Um, but we actually, and this is also unusual, and I feel like it's a bit sacrilege to even say this, but we actually didn't watch that much of the Olympics either. Um, and I'm going to blame the scenario of homeschool and work because in the day was the time when we could attempt to get things done. And so I didn't have the TV on. Um, I see. I thought the Olympics was just homeschool. 
Like that's what parents do, right? Like <laughs> See, I, missed, I missed that memo. I should have read that memo and made that two weeks just a practical lesson in watching the Olympics. Um, but we definitely have been watching bits and pieces and getting the highlights. Um, and, yeah, I mean I share with you Ellie Cole is just phenomenal. So many of the um, Australian Paralympics, Paralympians who were there are just phenomenal to watch and, um, yeah, definitely agree with you that um, – for the whole, I think, you know, because the Olympics and then the Paralympics have coincided with a lot of the country being in lockdown, it is really nice to have something positive that's popping up on the news all the time and, and you know, watching clips of whoever's just won something. Um, it's definitely a welcome bright spot in the landscape of the um, news right now. Yes. Yeah, keep it going. This, you know, a never-ending stream of the Olympics and Paralympics is what we need right now. <laughs> Either that or we all need to get vaccinated and uh, get out of this mess, you know, either way. It's Could either we maybe or- have both or would that be too expect- too demanding? <laughs> vaccinated and permanent Olympics and Paralympics. Well, let's hope that that's maybe what they're talking about um, as well as many other uh, things in the Women's Safety Summit this week, Georgie, mm. um, because you wrote a piece today. Uh, and it was exactly, I'm sure, what so many women are feeling and wanting to say right now about the government's record on women's safety and the goal of the Prime Minister to keep suggesting that he cares so much about what's going on and the plight of women at the moment and then the news yesterday that the coalition government has actually rejected 49 of the recommendations of the Respect at Work report that was a landmark report um, done by Kate Jenkins in which earlier this year they said that they accepted at least in full or in part every single one of those recommendations. So, Georgie, can you take us into your feelings a little bit more on this? Yes, I can, Tala, because I have got feelings, a lot of them, (laughs) on this particular subject. And I think it's a combination of things. So this week I have been completely dismayed, utterly dismayed, as a lot of other Australians have been, to watch the Morrison government oversee a situation where they have just accepted six out of the 55 game-changing recommendations. Now, this report was the culmination of a historic and comprehensive inquiry into sexual harassment in workplaces in this country. Um, The report has got 55 recommendations. It was handed to Scott Morrison and his government in uh, March of 2019 and it was ignored for a full year. And then earlier this year, the Prime Minister did finally pick it up and read it and He picked it up and read it at exactly the moment when it became not just politically convenient for him to have some response to women in this country, but also it was actually politically necessary because he was under sustained pressure. Um, So this is in April of 2020 following the, I suppose, the eruption of a volcanic fury and anger um, right around the country from women, you know, triggered by a, a set of incidents that have 
represented more than the individuals involved. So I'm talking about, of course, the incredible 2021 Australian of the Year, Grace Tame. I'm talking about Brittany Higgins coming out and explaining her situation. I'm talking about a senior cabinet minister having historic criminal allegations made against him. And the culmination, not just of these events, but specifically the Prime Minister and his government's official response to all of these events led to this moment where in April he needed to say to the women of Australia in particular, I see you, I hear you, I understand your anger and I'm going to do something about it. Now, he did say that he, his government would accept and, of course, they used the words in principle or in, or in part, all 55 recommendations in the report. And now the gall of standing up and saying that openly and, and talking about a commitment to the safety and security of women in this country and then passing just six of the recommendations. And it is worth noting that the six that have passed are absolutely not the six most powerful recommendations. So the, the, the huge game-changing recommendation would be to create a positive onus on the part of employers to create safe workplaces where sexual harassment does not occur. Now that would take the onus and responsibility for managing sexual harassment and sexual assault and worse from individual women and put it onto employers as an obligation. Now that would alter, like that would completely transform the power dynamic that enables sexual harassment and assault to sort of be as prolific as it is in our workplaces. So Morrison's response is completely inadequate. But what really gets me is that he has made this decision in the same week that he has asked his Women's Cabinet Task Force to um, run the National Women's Safety Summit. And this was announced at a similar time when he was responding to the anger among women, where he put together a team of women in his cabinet and sort of charged them with taking care of women's safety and women's economic security. This summit is happening right now. So in the very same week that Scott Morrison has rejected 49 out of 55 game-changing recommendations to meaningfully improve the safety of women in workplaces in this country, we are expected to believe that they are hosting a summit in good faith to explore options to improve the safety and security of women in this country. And I was thinking about it last night as I watched Q&A, which was on this subject of the, of the National Summit, and I thought, you know, there was a time when I genuinely believed no male leader would treat women in this country with the gall that Tony Abbott, the former Prime Minister, did. And yet I genuinely believe that watching Scott Morrison at the moment, Tony Abbott almost pales into insignificance in terms of his treatment of women in this country. Scott Morrison this year has shown Australian women and Australian men how little he cares about the safety of women in this country. The response to the Respect at Work report is irrefutable. A Prime Minister who cared about the safety of women in this country could not reject 49 of those 55 recommendations. Mm -hmm. And I think that Morrison's brand of not caring, to put it mildly, is more insidious in a sense than Abbott's because he puts on a front all the time 
of caring, of standing up and saying, I am listening to women. I can, I know what's going on. This, you know, and he, he uses all of the right marketing techniques and all the right spin. And he says things like he is accepting these recommendations one minute. And then as soon as the national conversation is turned slightly off that issue, in which it was very much, the spotlight was very much on you know, the anger of women at that period that he did say um, he did come out and, and agree to those recommendations. Now that that's not the case, he knows that he can move slyly into a different space. And I think it is so repugnant um, and unforgivable. And I hope that it is like he's held to account. I, I actually haven't heard him speak on the coalition's uh, rejection of those recommendations yet but I am keen to hear how he can possibly talk his way out of that but I will not be surprised in the slightest to see if he can um, because we know that's what he's most adept at um, so yeah look it's it's a real concern and and experts on that women's safety summit as well you know experts are, have put forward you know hundreds of recommendations in which they want the government to look at and implement so um we will see if that summit is not just all lip service as well, which I, I've, you know, cynically, but I think also I guess the past has informed my my cynicism. Um, I, I don't believe that they will. Well, yeah, and I mean I think that is the the sort of impunity with which Morrison acts I think is, is really at the core of what um, is really difficult to accept at the moment and reconcile. and. It is really like it is deeply disheartening for me to say that I think cynicism is the only option we have when assessing this summit, and that's not for lack of um, goodwill and not for lack of leadership um, in this space. We have got many of the solutions to, to some of these problems, and what we need is the political will to implement them. Um, and I don't. I personally cannot see the current Prime Minister or his government developing the appetite or will to do that. No. I am in total agreement with you. Um, Georgie, let's move on to an interview that I've done this week with Di Lee, who is the Fairfield City Councillor who entered the political arena in 2012, um, and she spent much of her career championing the rights for migrant families like her own within the area. Her advocacy and voice for the people of Fairfield has never been more important as it is right now um, with those ongoing restrictions um, in, in the southwest of Sydney. Um, and also a really kind of ugly narrative taking place that is, you know, perpetuated by our government. Uh, so she also was speaking with um, Yvonne Weldon, who is part of this interview as well. And Yvonne is the first Indigenous woman to ever run for Sydney City Mayor, and she'll be taking on incumbent Clovermore at the next election. Um, her mission is around bringing back integrity, and both of them were just a delight to, to speak with. And um, I think, you know, really trailblazing um, for culturally and linguistically diverse women uh, in Australia. So let's jump to that interview now. If you watched Annabelle Crabb's recent ABC documentary, Misrepresented, you'd know how hard the barriers can be for women in politics. But for culturally and linguistically diverse women, these challenges are heightened tenfold. 
Thankfully, trailblazers ultimately help shift things for women who follow in their footsteps. And in this episode, I'm joined by two agitators of change in local government doing just that. Di Lee was appointed Fairfield City Councillor in 2012. As a refugee to Australia, she knows unique challenges often facing migrant communities and has spent her career championing their rights in her community. At a time when her local area is hit hardest by Sydney's COVID restrictions, Di has used her voice to advocate for families and call out certain decisions by New South Wales state government. Joining Di in this interview is Yvonne Weldon, a proud Wiradjuri woman. Weldon is the first Aboriginal person to ever run for Sydney Lord Mayor. Yvonne replaces Karen Phelps in the race to supersede incumbent Clover Moore at the next election. Her impetus for running is to create meaningful change and restore integrity. Di and Yvonne, thank you very much for joining me. Di, how are you coping with these long weeks in isolation? Look, it has been challenging, as I have no doubt it has been for people across uh, New South Wales and Sydney with this lockdown. Uh, and uh, today, I, some of my residents have said to me, look, we've stopped just watching the 11 o'clock doom and gloom conference because we just know that the numbers are going to go up with the testing. So we just get on with as best as we can with our lives and not be so mentally impacted by listening to this really depressing news. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And Yvonne, how have you been going? The hardest part is that nothing has slowed down um, and the impacts are being far greater in terms of home life and every other parts of life. And certainly the election uh, has been impacted where it's been deferred because, um, you know, because of COVID. But the way that uh, the lockdown and I think this time around the mental health of and the social emotional wellbeing of so many people are being um, stretched in, in ways that we haven't seen before because people are aware of what happened before but there is so many more unknowns in what we're dealing with at the moment. Um, and because um, it continues to change um, and in both messaging but also on how we need to respond, uh, there's so much more um, uncertainty in how, um, how and what that looks like for everyone and it's, uh, it's not easy. Mm. And how have you felt watching some of those regional communities um, with high Indigenous populations struggling throughout this period and seeing outbreaks there that haven't been dealt with properly? It's really concerning. It's, it's a real worry because this should not have happened. We've had all these words and commitments for federal government and yet the reality of what that looks like on the ground is just not there. There's major failures around how we protect those that are most vulnerable and yet we're not protecting at all. Uh, the fact that you can't access the vaccine, you know, there was so much uh, fanfare about all of those other things but not necessarily about the meaningful things that, that really can change everyone's life for the worst, um, not just now but into the future. And so it's 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 a real concern because it continues to grow. Um, as we see the numbers go up and they've sort of come down slightly from yesterday, today, but, you know, they they're still quite large numbers and if you got that number and put it in one of those communities, you'd eradicate potentially the whole community or everyone in a country town could potentially be affected with those types of numbers and that's that's the real worry. I mean, in some of these towns actually, um, you know, didn't even have water a year ago, you know, what does that mean? And so when you look at some of those country towns, they only have one shop and so if that uh, needs to close because there's been an active case in that shop. How do people eat? 
they don't. And so they can't go to the next shopping centre or the next town because everyone's in lockdown in, in those towns. And it, the, the scare amongst that and also the way that people live, people in, you know, which I'd like to see more of it in, in Sydney, but people share um, and they care for one another. And, um, and we see pockets of that here in Sydney, but you see greater aspects of that because of the isolation as well in some of these country towns. Yeah. I mean, the mind boggles about how that has been handled and the fact that those communities weren't protected from the outset, very, very beginning with the vaccine rollout. Um, Di, I want to first check in with you about your community of Fairfield as well. Um, You've been very vocal about what you believe to to be a mismanaged approach by the New New South Wales state government on lockdown. Is this what you're hearing from families in, in Fairfield as well? Before I answer your question, I just want to, Yvonne's, you know, what she's just raised. I think the government is really facing something here that's very challenging. The, the, our government, state and federally, have not experienced these kind of adversities before. So, therefore, I don't believe they have a real clear plan in terms of how to manage. And I think, as we're seeing, it's managing it day by day and, therefore, reacting to it day by day. Uh, and as a result of that, we get all of the daily changes that we're getting. And as a result of that, for a community like Fairfield City Council, the daily changes meant that, you know, what's said one day, the next day has, has changed again. I'll give you an example. Initially, we were told that it was okay. And, you know, scientifically, that when you're outside, there isn't any evidence that the virus will spread and that if you're walking in a park, it's actually safe and you can do that without a mask. 24 hours later, that got changed to say, no, you've got to wear a mask. And so sometimes when the message changes, it it doesn't get out to the population of, say, 210,000 people in our LGA plus all the other LGAs as quickly, right, because nobody sits there and watch the 11 o'clock news. You know, if you look at the numbers, sometimes it's 4,000, sometimes it's 10,000 watching it. And then the next following day, you're told you can travel within 10 kilometres of your residence. And then the following day, it got changed to you can only travel within five kilometres of your your radius of your residence. So basically, I think with the, the daily changes that we're getting constantly every morning that has huge ramifications on families out here you know for instance you know if we got a large number of families with uh, special needs kids that's that's kids with disabilities or, or autism um, they are prevented from getting out of their place to go to a park they can't play in a park because of their disability and they can't even sit in the car near in the park just for that one hour of of recreation because you're not allowed to because you have to go to a park to either exercise but you can't be seen to be congregating around a park so all of these minute details it's really having huge ramifications in terms of people's mental health and well-being people are feeling scared people are feeling anxious people are feeling so depressed they can't seem to see that light at the end of the tunnel so for me it has been the last few months have been very challenging because community members just constantly reaching out to me and you know there aren't any really and you know we've got our mayor who's very outspoken but in terms of of elected representatives here we don't see them they're not standing out and advocating for this community i understand the challenges i understand that the health and well-being of your family is priority you don't need more incentives other than incentives of keeping your family health 
uh, and safe from any virus. So I think that if the message has been about protecting protecting the health of your families and your loved ones, and have, it has been delivered in a way that is more nurturing rather than punitive, I think it would have been less divisive. That's from my perspective. So that's how how do you communicate with the people, right? How do you communicate and get them to do the right thing? But that's saying my community has been doing the right thing. Yes, there's a minority of them that have done, you know, like in any communities, there's a small number of people who will not follow the rules and follow the laws. But the majority have, and yet we are now paying the price for a small numbers of people, and we're prepared to be in lockdown. But when you look at the policies that have been implemented, it's very different. It's very different to East and West. And there seems to be this divide now that has been drawn which is not the right thing when you're trying to govern for everybody. I want to ask you about that actually because, you know, the way that this has been communicated and dealt with by the New South Wales government has been very different to how they dealt with outbreaks in Bondi or the Northern Beaches, for instance. Why do you think that is? Look, I think that, um, well, there are many reasons that the government gave in terms of why there was this difference in uh, the way that they've taken this approach. I know friends of mine who who live in the northern beaches who said, look, we were locked down for six weeks over Christmas. It was very difficult, etc." And, you know, we were all locked down at the same time that they were locked down as well, right? Uh, they couldn't get across the speed bridge. So they said it, they, they understood, but they said that because of the high numbers in our Fairfield LGA, as a result of that, that's why there's this harsh and stricter measures. But my issue was around the whole messaging has made it out as if we had started this and it started from here. Definitely the spread has been quicker in our area. That's because we don't have the large backyards. We don't have the large spaces and people live on, on top of one another. And that's the socioeconomic makeup of Fairfield LGA. A large proportions uh, of refugees backgrounds, of migrant backgrounds are working class families. But ironically, the majority of the populations here are actually, they are the engine of the New South Wales economy. They are the ones that goes into the manufacturing hubs to manufacture the food and goods that you need. They are the ones that drive the trucks to deliver across the country, not just New South Wales. Uh, They are the ones that are going out to construct and build homes and, and buildings. The majority of those people, workers, the authorised workers are actually from southwest Sydney and a large proportion of them are from LGA. So when, if you recall, when the government said locking down those in the construction and workers who are in retail who aren't allowed to work from LGA, there was a sudden turnaround the next day because they realised that, oh, my God, if they stop those workers from leaving LGA, then that means the Woolies, the Coles, all of those, and the manufacturers will not have nobody in their companies uh, working. So therefore, they came up with that authorised list. Um, so there were a lot of things that I hope that the government learned from making this kind of paintbrush decision to understand the makeup of our community. And so when that decision to stop our people from leaving to work, and then in addition to then take every three days to get tested every three days, Sure, the Northern Beaches were locked down, but because they weren't involved in the work that our community were involved in, 
they did not place as restrictions there because a lot of those people work in offices, whereas our people did not work in offices. They work in the manufacturing industry, in the construction industry, in the retail industry and all of that. I don't know how to help them, Tala. And I just, and that's why I'm asking the government to really listen, to actually have the intel to understand our community or communities like ours before they come out with these huge changing regulations on a daily basis in addition. Mm. Yvonne, I want to ask your um, perspective on this. I mean, what Guy's talking about there is, you know, this lack of cultural awareness and understanding from those who make decisions, um, you know, on behalf of all electorates. Do you do you think that that's a pressing concern in today's kind of political makeup? Oh, look, I think that it depends on, without a doubt, it's a key part. It should be called to how you engage. If you truly uh, represent all, then you need to represent all and you're not communicating well or the communication is not being received because it's not being pitched at the right level or it's not actually being spread to everybody, then how are you saying that you do that for all and sundry? Uh, You don't. And if you think about local government, for example, where are they in some of this decision-making? Where is their expertise? and whether they've got them, I must say, um, because there are some local governments that actually do things that are not so inclusive, are very uh, exclusive in the way that they do business or they actually have their advice from their staff but do not listen to the people that live and work in their LGAs. And yet we know our patch is a lot better than the broader scope and yet the communication and the engagement is not happening across all layers of government and that can also equally be said in local government that that engagement uh, isn't happening across all of our areas. I don't understand why local government can accept DAs and approve things and decline things but yet we're not taking a lead role around those specific issues that impact the people that live here and the people that work here or need to leave the areas to go and work somewhere else, shouldn't we have a greater involvement in that to be able to help influence that but support those that are coming to us for those same issues that they're not being heard? Can I add to that that local government is the closest level of government to the people? When you go out there, when you talk about the roads, your rubbish, your rates, and even your education system and your health system, well, what I am finding as an elected councillor at Fairfield is that people turn to us because we are seen more approachable. We are at that local level. And so I think where this whole communication between federal, state and what's happening uh, uh, with the rollout around the communication is that there hasn't been an inclusive leadership approach to bring the local councils together to say, look, guys, this is what's happening. How can you actually assist us? You have a better understanding of the community where you live. Um, You actually will know what other pertinent issues, how can we work together? And I think government, not just this, but I think successive governments overall, there hasn't been that very collaborative approach. There hasn't been that kind of, say, bring people together and they might have disagreeing views, but at least if you hear those diverse perspectives, you can understand, you can go away and think, hang on, there are these different perspectives. How can we take this on board and come up with a better and innovative solutions? And that's for me, is very important. Diverse perspectives doesn't mean that you, you know, hate the government or you disagree, you disagree with them, but 
you know, at the end of the day, I believe what we're aiming for is a, to get a better outcome and solution for the people, for me, that I represent. And in the state or federal, if they want better representation, if they want real outcomes and real solutions, wouldn't it be better if they actually engage with those that are at that level that deal with people? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, Yvonne, can I ask you about your the impetus for running for Lord Mayor and whether or not what we've just been talking about, about, you know, creating um, greater representation of all communities and, you know, forming diversity of thought in, in government played a key role for you in that decision? Yeah, like I certainly think, I um, mean, I take my point, the points that Di has made, but it also needs to be more broader to the elected people. Um, you need to be able to engage with the very people that you say that you represent. Certainly for me and why I've, I've stood initially, I was standing um, on Karen Phelps's team because I was really disillusioned about how the community that I represent, particularly the local Aboriginal Land Council and uh, the community groups there around what is necessary for First Nations people. And yet that, that engagement was not in the true essence of the word of engagement. And so I wanted to be a part of Karen's team to become involved in council to make sure that the community that I represent but also I am um, engaged with in a real way uh, has voices at the table. Um, what I have seen in terms of council and, and watching and listening online you know, there are a number of people that are elected already, but yet you don't see that they're representing the voices of the very people that they engage with or even those people are going to speak to those individual councillors. So where is the voice of those residents or where are those voices of those people that have brought the issues? Um, what I've seen it become more about a political process more than actually about the true essence of who they say they represent. Um, they're representing everybody at the moment because there's an election coming up. Um, but for me, the policies and, and really where I come from is that community engagement is an important part um, of who we be. Uh, what I've seen take place, even doing door knocking before, you know, COVID happened or re-happened, um, you know, and out door knocking and, you know, speaking to residents, you know, even around at Moore Park and, and, and Piermont and the likes, real frustrations about how the consultation, public consultation, is not in the true essence of what it should be. Like at Moore Park Road, for example, those residents actually got a pamphlet put in uh, in their mailbox on a Sunday night uh, to say that on Tuesday all the off-street parking, or the on-street parking that these residents had were no longer going to exist because it was because of COVID that they needed um, the bike lanes to be put there because people weren't travelling in cars, they were travelling in bikes. I think, you know, for, there was no audit done uh, in terms of safety. There was no audit in terms of usage. Um, I don't think that it's been done to date, but I know the residents can count them on, you know, the, themselves. So you don't need to employ any great consultant to do it. The, the residents have the information, the expertise, because they live there. And yet that is not actually reflective in how council is engaging with the very people that pay their rates and actually should have a voice and should be included in the decision-making. For me, the inclusion aspect is so important because how, how do we truly have a city that represents all if we actually don't engage with all? 
I think it's fair to say that diversity is lacking across the entire spectrum of politics. Um, Di, can I ask you a little bit about that and what you feel um, are the mechanisms that can be put in place to actually encourage greater diversity in politics uh, and, and how, you know, how we get to that point? Oh, it's a $6 million question, Tala. It's very challenging. I think now with social media, I think that that will impact while we have more trollings and all the stuff, but we actually have more access to information and that people will actually have more access to choices in terms of information about the individual you know, members of parliament or councillor that they want to elect. So I think in today's kind of world that we're living in, that information is a bit more freely available so people can make that that their independence of thinking, I hope. Um, and I think I, I take comfort in some of the independents that have been elected to federal parliament and I think state as well. And so that means that people are actually looking for alternatives and they're looking for elected representatives who actually represent them, represent them in terms of they can approach them, they can speak to them. And it's not just, you know, that you've been there and you just go in there and vote blindly. I think what the major parties will probably be facing in the next few elections is that uh, ordinary people will start to question their policies, questions their solutions, questions um, the way that they have approached and, and, and governed for us all. Mm-hmm. Yvonne, as, a, as an Indigenous woman and, you know, as a trailblazer in, in going into this position and running for, for Lord Mayor, are you concerned or anxious or apprehensive about some of the challenges that might face you because you're a first I'm not afraid of a challenge, um, clearly, because I've stood as I have. But there's certainly, you know, uh, lessons learned quite quickly um, because you're faced with them and you need to respond to be able to be resilient enough to continue to respond in a way with experience. Um, I think that I have taken on lots of roles in my whole journey, you know, both uh, professionally and, and through my voluntary uh, unpaid work as well, that uh, a lot of these firsts is something that, you know, I, I didn't know, but I've, I've learned so much more. When I think about the challenges that lay ahead, it's a matter of continually being sure of self about what needs to get done. I thought about myself as a uh, as a young person, which was such a long time ago now, but I thought about would I have ever realised something like this? Would I, could I have ever imagined it? And I would say no. So if it means that the time has come that we do make that change, but make the change in the positive because there's been so much change in the negative in this country, um, how about we actually do it in a positive you know, if, if there has been negatives in other states, I must say, where people have come uh, with such a divisive view um, and very detrimental to who they believe to be Australian, uh, why shouldn't this First Nations woman be able to make that difference to be inclusive, not just for my people, but for all people? Mm. Hear, hear. <laughs> And Yvonne, just on your leadership journey and what you're hoping to achieve, can I ask you about the policy areas that are the most pressing to you? Oh, look, I, you know, certainly um, housing affordability 
uh, and sustainability really, you know, like to be affordable and, and also have social housing is a must um, in our LGA. What, um, what I've seen in my, in my life that, um, you know, the working class have been priced out of the city, um, you know, and when you have young families um, that, or you've got younger people sort of moving on, you've still got older people, people that are less able, that their access to uh, the LGA, uh, whether that be for housing or even through services are no longer there um, or they're actually starting to dwindle and move out because the people are no longer there. Um, and when you look at, you know, the developments that have taken place, there, you know, there seems to be lots of developments for one end of town but not for all ends of town. Um, you know, it's it's a real worry. And that act has flow-on impacts on businesses, um, how we can continue to have, um, you know, the small businesses and entrepreneurs our creative industries are, are dying out in terms of being within the LGA. They're moving further and further out. And I'm not saying that, you know, that dyes area or areas surrounding are not as, as viable and, and as beautiful as, as uh, what I have in, in my backyard. But what I'm saying is, is that we're having, we'll eventually have uh, less and less of the diversity within our great city. Um, you know, I'm certainly passionate about powering our green economy. We need to be, make sure that we're leading by example from council um, and we need to make sure that we are supporting others that want to have a greener city as well. And, and in actual fact, is our city uh, as green as other cities um, around, you know, around the globe or even around the country when you see that the amount of high density that's been built, there's less and less of more community greenings but communities per se because they're not coming together because where do they come together on on the floor i mean people are now scared to because of covid but will they into the future engage less and less because of the fear of what that engagement will then become you know if you can't have those uh open spaces um even local venues uh for our creative um you know, our music scene, you know, our nightlife, all of those things, we seem to be dying off. It, it seems to be going to either other states or certain to other parts of the city. So for me, you know, we're, I'm really passionate about making Sydney fairer and safer and healthier and making sure we actually have a city that does have that with the people that we have in it because we're losing them. Um, and to have greater efficiency, accountability, integrity in council, and decision-making to be truly looked at in a transparent way um, is where I come from and where I will always uh, be committed to. Because when people are asking, you know, how does this decision get made or how how is it that I spoke to, you know, I've signed a petition or I've, I've um, put my views forward in this consultation, what did my consultation mean if it was just ignored? I didn't hear anything back. So how do we make sure that we are connecting with all parts um, of the city and every part of the Sydney, uh, city of Sydney doesn't just mean the big end of town, it means all end of town. Mm. I think that those are pursuits that will definitely resonate with uh, thousands of Sydney siders. So I am very excited to, to see how things progress. Um, I want to ask you both just one last question. I want to ask your advice um, for women that are aspiring to pursue political careers similar to your own and, you know, especially those from culturally diverse backgrounds or First Nations women. 
what are your what what is your key advice? I might start with you, Di. Uh, my key advice is to be really resilient and to have the courage to really either put your hat in the ring, to really give it a go, and to also make sure that you're surrounded by people that you trust, um, that you, you, you can seek advice from. That third one is very hard to find, especially in the political arena. If you're in politics, you, you just don't turn to people because there is that fear that it could be seen as a weakness if you ask for help or whatever. But I think that there has to be that kind of support network. I have found that traveling through this journey, it has been hard to seek advice because first of all, there aren't many women or women of background like mine in politics anyway, to then to ask, how was that journey? You know, how did you do it? And what advice can you give me? I, I actually fumbled through it. I navigated through it and made mistakes and fell down. But but you know what? I, I live by the Japanese saying of you fall down seven times and you stand up eight times. So, you know, you have to pick yourself up and take the knives off your back and continue to stay focused and just stay focused if that's where you want to be and what you want to do. I think that's great advice. Uh, and Yvonne? Oh, look, I think that, I mean, if I think about myself and, and being quite fresh in, in terms of politics itself um, in, in mainstream, we've certainly been, you know, we've had lots um, lots of politics in, in terms of Aboriginal community controlled and, and just, you know, Aboriginal politics is, is pretty brutal on any given day. Um, when I think about uh, my journey um, and even the conversation I had was, that, you know, with me about you should stand and I thought, what? You know, like that's not, that wasn't a part of the plan. Um, but sometimes the plan is there for you when you don't even realise it is. Um, I think that, um, you know, I sat very still with that within myself and I had the conversations with my family um, and sat still with that again. Um, but I sit, I sit in that stillness of the many people that have gone before me that would never, you know, um, never got the opportunity to have the realisation that even me standing was possible in their lifetime. And, I, and those lives are lost. And so I owe it to them. And this is not about a guilt or, or um, something that um, I'm owed because it's expected, but I expect myself to owe them because of the hardships that they experienced uh, for me, uh, for the very fact that I can stand um, in this role and be supported by people around me uh, that are not family but have certainly become part of my family and a part of my community because I've always been a part of their community and I have always included them as mine and, and, and the wonderful team that I have around me um, include me just like their own as I do them. And so that's that's the important part that I want to be able to share is that and, and as First Nations people we, we are 
are sharing people. You know, we have existed here for over 60,000 years. We have hundreds of different nations and tribes and clans that have existed here. So we had to be quite resilient, as Diane said, and we we had to adapt, uh, but we had to also come back to core. And that core is me sitting in, in my silence, sitting in what I've always known and what I always will represent is the very people that have gone before me and I will actually go before the very people that I'm leaving behind in terms of my family and my, my children, my grandchildren, my grandson and my future grandchildren, is that what difference do I want to make for them and what difference do I want to make for for the rest of my community um, and we all have an opportunity to contribute um, for community um, but we but it's about us recognising that we do um, and one of the greatest lessons I think um, that I have learned my entire life is expect it to be hard um, don't don't um, have the expectation that anything's going to be easy. Expect some of the hard stuff that you don't, the ugliness of things, because it, it's there. Um, and But you should use that. Um, and the way that I deal with that is I try and flip it into a positive and I think about, well, what what is the lesson in this and what am I not going to continue to have in this world around me I want to be able to change this and so for every negative part that will come to you there's always a positive that you can give back to it and then eventually you may not get it the first time but you may be able to get a positive eventually in a way that is more inclusive because we are so diverse but we need to be able to accept each other for our diversity and for our uniqueness but we also need to be able to come together to make that difference not just for us now but just for us into the future and so many of us that are coming behind us. Mm. Well, thank you so much for joining me on this podcast and, and for sharing your stories and your advocacy and for, you know, having the courage to lead a path that will make it infinitely easier for women um, to follow in your footsteps. So thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Lantala. A huge thank you again to Di and Yvonne for joining me on that interview and sharing their perspective on, you know, reaching a more diverse place in Australia, um, in local politics, why it's important um, and and really, you know, all of their efforts that have gone into um, building out a more progressive future. Um, Georgie, just to finish up for this week, I want to talk about, and you've always got some, some doozies, um, I want to talk about your recommendations for binging this weekend because God knows we're all binging something. Um, so what have you been watching? Well, I am late to this party, but boy, am I happy I've arrived. <laughs> I have started, my husband and I this week have started um, Ted Lasso on Apple oh, TV oh. and it is every bit as delightful and entertaining and funny as I had heard. Um, and I think I'm indicating is- my mother who has been telling me for weeks now to watch it and she usually gives me some terrible recommendations which I swiftly put in the bin so um, well look let me tell you we are having an absolutely delightful time <laughs> catching up with Ted and I feel that at this particular moment in in Australia in particularly in Sydney at this time of year 
Um, my goodness, I need delight. I need lighthearted relief. And Ted is delivering the goods. Oh, okay. All right. Well, I may have to, I may have to finally, you know, um, get involved in that one. I have, as I said, I've been kind of ignoring my mum's pleas to watch it for quite well, some time, but I'll, I'll get on it. You rectify um, that. What are you recommending? I am also late to the party, but I started um, the adaptation of Liam Moriarty's book, Nine Perfect Strangers, on Amazon Prime this week with Nicole Kidman and Melissa McCarthy. And I have to say, it's much better than I actually anticipated it would be. It got an absolute shellacking in the review stakes, but I love I just, I love Melissa McCarthy. I could watch her in anything. She is just so divine. I think she's an amazing actor. Um, and I read that book and it's, I have to be honest, it's not my favourite of Leah Moriarty's books, um, but it is a good, it's a fun read. It's interesting and it does, I think it's lending itself to TV form. Um, but have you watched that yet? No, I haven't um, actually. But the other one that I will say, and this is this is one we've been watching for ages, and it's not new, but it's in a similar genre to um, Ted Lasso. It's just it's Superstore. I don't know whether you've watched that on Netflix, but it's they're twenty minute episodes. American for America Ferrera is the lead actress, and it's set in this sort of department store kind of Walmart situation. Um, in America and it's just sort of about the funny workplace dynamics and it is just a really consistent 20 minutes an excellent funny snack for, to oh. the end to end the day on I do like a 20 minute episode of pretty much anything because mm. that is all that my brain can truly focus on before I go to sleep so uh, I will take that one and run with it as well Georgie thank you so much again for joining us this week um, and everything that you're doing at The Parenthood, we love seeing all of the, the amazing efforts that the organisation is, is um, contributing to at the moment and that real um, shift in dialogue around um, equality at work. So thank you again and we will chat to you soon. Just a reminder to anyone that you can access any of the stories that we've spoken about on the podcast today at womensagenda.com.au and you can also access our range of podcasts, including the leadership lessons uh, hosted by Shirley Chowdhury, looking at progressive leadership into the decade ahead and the women who are at the forefront of that. That is a series supported by Salesforce. So please go and do that and we will see you next week.